0: chapter 3. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and the ushers are ready to pass one out to you. A couple of weeks ago, after one of the services here at the church, I was having a conversation with one of the brothers in the solid ground. And he was expressing to me a frustration that he was having. He mentioned that he had been attending more and more of the Bible studies here at the church and that he was being blessed by them. But that there was something that was happening wherein each time he left a Bible study, he felt like he had another to-do list. And that he was starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed because of all the little to-do lists that he found himself uh, feeling the pressure of having to measure up to. And what I sought to communicate to him during the course of our conversation is that this Christian thing, the, the, the reason why we study the Bible and the purpose of our gatherings is not because of a to-do list that we're receiving from the Lord, But it's because of a to-done list that's been provided by the Lord. See, Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. He didn't say, well, now the real work can begin. Or, now I've provided an alternate path that has an alternate list of things that provides a new way that's contrasted with the old. No, he said, it is finished. Now, of the thousands of things that Jesus was accomplishing upon the cross, one of the most significant and impacting was that he changed the meeting place of God and man. He changed the place where God and man meet together. Prior to the cross, the place where God and man met together was Mount Sinai. You know, that place where God led Moses and took him up on the hill and gave to him the law. And Mount Sinai is the place where the largest to-do list and to-don't list was ever created. And the relationship that man could have with God on Mount Sinai was based upon how well man could adhere to the to-dos and to-don'ts that were there provided upon that list. But here's what that produced. It produced an external effort that man put forth to try to conform to the standard that God had set. And it didn't work. Because the standard that God had set was contrary to the nature that was within man. And so although man understood what the list required and expressed a willingness to adhere to those things, he didn't possess the ability because it was contrary to his nature. Now, Jesus goes to the cross. And at the moment he says, it is finished, and gives up the ghost, he successfully revolutionizes the relationship process. He does two things. First of all, he single-handedly, in that one moment, completely removed and wasted the complete to-do list. He took it out of the way. That's what Paul said to the Colossians back in chapter 2, verse 14. He said, oh dear, I'm not on the right page. He said, I'm still not on the right page. Here we go. He says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. So, this law that was given, this list of to do's and to don'ts that God gave to Moses for the people, it was a lengthy list and it was contrary to us. Our nature was in contrast to the requirements that were on it, but it says, That he blotted it out, and it says that he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. He removed that list completely. Now, in doing that, he did the second thing, which is that he successfully changed the place where man meets God. He used to meet God on Mount Sinai, under the law, under those to-dos and to-don'ts as the basis for fellowship with God. But once Jesus fulfilled that list and removed it and took it out of the way, now the meeting place of God and man goes from Sinai to the soul of those that would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 27. He says that this mystery that's been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest unto his saints, wherein God would make known unto us what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the gentiles that is christ in you the hope of glory that the meeting place of god and man is no longer Sinai on a to-do list basis but it's in our soul internally well how does that revolutionize the relationship process The Apostle Peter explains what this means and the significance of it in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter writes this, and he says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great And precious promises that by these you might be partakers of, listen, the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is what Peter is telling us here. This is what Paul is getting at with the Colossians is that this mystery of Christ in you, something happens at the moment our relationship moves from Mount Sinai and Christ takes up his residency inside of us. Is that at that moment that Jesus moves in, he gives to us, listen, everything that we need for life and godliness. That we might be partakers of the divine nature. That's what Peter is telling us. Which means this, listen carefully. That when Jesus Christ moves inside of you and He moves inside of me, He gives to us a new set of DNA. You understand DNA? It's that he, you know, um, double helix structure that is inside each of our cells that holds within it the the code the genetic code that really has the information of all that we are the dna it's our genetic code it's what makes us what we are the color of our hair the color of our eyes the shape of our face our height the type of voice that we have all of that is in the dna our nature And what Peter is saying is that he's given us a new nature, the divine nature. He's put a new DNA in us that inside of us we have everything that we need for life and godliness that we might be partakers of the divine nature. So here's what Paul is saying and what Peter is explaining. Listen carefully. Is that a relationship with God has moved from being an external effort Based on our performance and our conformance to what he says to an internal power that transforms us and makes us what he designed us to be. So no longer are we seeking to, with a to-do list, make a list of what it is that we're to do and then try to conform our lives to what we think God wants, but rather the mystery of Christ in us is that now our relationship with God is that there is an internal power that transforms. Do you understand the difference between conforming to something and being transformed by something? We're talking about the New Covenant. In the book of Hebrews chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews in verse 10 says this about this covenant. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now here's what it's saying. Is that the will of God, what God requires, what he wants from us is no longer a list that we go to mount sinai to observe and conform to but rather it's something that's written within our hearts and therefore because it's in the dna of who we are in christ as we grow in him we will become what he is making us it's not an effort that we strive for it's something that he works in our lives as he feeds and grows and matures us in his name it's something that happens naturally That the law is written in our hearts does not mean that there's a post-it note. You know, we all understand that, right? You put a post-it, buy milk. You know, go to whatever, pay the bills. And we put it on the fridge. Oh, that's a reminder that I'm supposed to do that. No, no, no. If it's written in your heart, it's not a post-it like God's going to remind you. Oh, don't forget, love people today. That's not what it is. If it's written in your heart, it means it's programmed into who you are. That's what that means. Which means that as you grow in the Lord, as you draw from him, as you mature, you're going to become what he is. You're going to be a partaker of the divine nature. That's the glory of Christ in you, what Paul is preaching. Now, it doesn't happen all at once. Maybe you understood that. Anybody here know, understand that that doesn't happen all at once? That you didn't give your life to Christ and immediately the next day you were perfect, just like Jesus? You know? No, that's why we're born again, right? And we grow in the Lord because it's something that he's working in us. He's the one that's doing the work. He's going to bring it to pass. So you say, well, do I have a part to play? Or is it completely just he's going to just do it and I just go on my life and whatever, whatever, whatever. No, no, no. We do have a part to play and thus we come to Colossians chapter 3. The first two chapters of Colossians have been for us completely doctrinal. You've noticed this pattern with Paul, is that he will begin his his letters, the first half typically, is all doctrine. He's just explaining concepts. But then, once he finishes his explanation, he'll then apply it to our lives, and and he'll give us instruction as to how to go about living out the things that we've learned, right? Right? So chapters 1 and 2 have been doctrinal. He told us who Jesus is. And then he told us that Jesus now lives in you if you've put your faith in him. He's in you. He's not external anymore. He's in you. He's Christ in you. This glorious mystery. And then in chapter 2, he warned us about the cheap counterfeits. Legalism. Which is external. Mysticism which is an appearance of being holy and having an aura of spiritual mysticism about you, but it isn't authentic, it isn't real. And Gnosticism, wisdom, higher knowledge, being one that's ascended, in a sense, or an ascetic. See, and so he's warned us about those substitutes, the things that are just another repackaging of Sinai, to-do lists, outward things, and he's telling us, maintain Hold on to the substance that is Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what's going to make a difference in your life. Now, as we come into chapter 3, Paul is going to talk to us about four areas of our life where the choices that we make are either going to cultivate... And build up this relationship that we have with him in this work, this maturation that he's producing in us. Or our choices can also corrupt what the Lord is seeking to bring forth in our life. We do have a part to play. That's why it's a relationship. No relationship is one-sided. And so Paul is giving to us now that he's told us Christ is in you. You have this glorious treasure of having God incarnate living inside of you, closer than if he was the co-pilot of your car, you know, like the bumper sticker says. He's in you. So how do we then respond? And he talks about four areas of our life. First of all, he talks about our affections. Then he talks about our attire. How you dress matters, we're going to discover. Then he talks about our direction the direction for our lives, and then finally, he talks about our relationships. And so chapter 3, if you would look with me at verse 1, he begins talking to us about our affections. He says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth for you are dead and your life is hid with christ in god and when christ who is our life shall appear then shall ye also appear with him in glory he says if ye then be risen with christ and he's speaking to those that had jesus christ living inside of him He's referring to chapter 2, verse 12, where he said that we are buried with him in baptism, wherein we are also risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who raised Christ from the dead. That we're risen with him, and he's speaking concerning this concept of having Christ in us. If you have Christ in you, is what Paul's saying there. Then we are to seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He tells us to set our affections on things above. The word affection means to direct one's mind toward, to seek and to strive for, or to interest one's self in. So our mind is to be directed, our striving and seeking is to be after, and our interest is to be in things that are above, not on things that are upon the earth. And then he tells us why. He says, for you are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. One of my favorite things to do as a child was to stay home from school if I could get my mom to let me, or if I could deceive her into thinking I was sick and then to get a full block of Velveeta cheese and a box of Ritz crackers and watch Bob Barker and The Price is Right. Back in the glory days, you know, when Bob Barker used to host The Price is Right. And I just have the best memories of just sitting there, watching The Price is Right, people spinning the big wheel, and and it would always come down to the great showcase showdown at the end of the program. And here you would see these two people competing for this mega prize, you know. And and, and the thing that made it intense and worth watching is that there was always two choices. Anybody here never seen The Price is Right? You have no idea what I'm talking about? Oh, this is good. 100% knowledge here. This is great. Okay, everybody knows The Price is Right. They show you the first showcase, and it's like a trip to Jamaica, you know, and everybody cheers. And, and then a new jet ski to go with your trip to Jamaica. And a new bathing suit. And, you know, and, and it's all these wonderful things. And then here's the intense part, is that the person who is ahead can choose whether or not they want to bid on that showcase or pass for number two, making a gamble whether or not number two is going to be better than number one. So if they pass, then they lock in. They're choosing what's behind door number two before they know what it is. They already know what's behind door number one. But if they feel like, hey, what's behind door number two is probably better, then they can pass on door number one. And so, you know, sometimes you would see them pass, and and they would pass, and then they would show the second showcase. And sometimes it would be a new dining room table. And the whole crowd, ooh, you know, ooh, you screwed that one up, buddy. You know, you should be on your way to Jamaica right now, you know. And, and you made the wrong choice. Or it was something better, a new airplane, you know, and with your own personal pilot. And, and then it's like, yes, I chose right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, listen. This world that we live in, this world displays for us an incredible showcase, doesn't it? There are pleasures that this world offers to us. There are treasures that this world offers to us. There are experiences and ambitions and, and, and glories. There are senses, sights and sounds and smells to, to be enjoyed. This world has an incredible showcase, doesn't it? That allures us and that grips us. There's some attachment, this fondness that we have to it. There's a showcase that's in this world. The problem with that showcase... Is that John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And listen, here it is. And the world is passing away with its affections and its lusts. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The problem with this world and the showcase that it gives to us is that it doesn't last. That no matter how good it might be, or no matter what you might experience, or what you might boast of, it's temporal, and it doesn't last, and ultimately it will be destroyed. Now the dilemma of the believer and the non-believer is that there is also a showcase in the world to come. There are experiences that are unspeakable beyond words. There are senses and things to be experienced that no man has ever even conceptualized in the depths of his mind or in the genius of his thinking. There are things that Paul the Apostle caught a glimpse of that said, there are no words in the English language for me to try to express to you what it is or what will be there. In fact, even here in our text, the only word that he can use to describe it is glory. He said that we will appear with him in glory there at the end of verse 4. But here's the dilemma, is that we haven't seen it. And so what Paul is urging us to do is to pass on the showcase of this world so that we might embrace the showcase of that which is to come, not yet knowing exactly what that holds. And in that, there lies a dilemma. You say, well, how do you do that? How do you separate yourself from the affections of this life to embrace the affections towards something that you don't even quite really know what it is, though maybe we've tasted a little bit of it in the presence of the Lord? You know. How do we do that? Well, the answer comes in our second point, which is our attire, what Paul goes on to talk about. Look with me there at verse 5. How do we separate ourselves from the affections of this life? He says, verse 5, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them, but now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Paul uses this concept of getting dressed. That's something that we're all familiar with. Anybody here not know what it's like to get dressed? We're doing good, two for two tonight. You know, 100% understanding on this one. Paul takes this concept that all of us would understand. Choosing clothes. Standing in front of the mirror and saying, I don't like the way that looks. And, you know, this is my Wednesday night. You know, this is what I do. I I dress real good, jeans and a t-shirt. But when I have to look half-decent... It's very difficult, you know, for me. And and so I know this concept of putting off and putting on, choosing clothes, the proper attire for the occasion. And Paul is using that example or that illustration to talk to us not about the clothes that we wear literally, but rather the behavior that we put on or the nature that we wear when we are living in this world. And in so doing, he answers the question of how do we put off affections to the things of this life. And here's what he tells us to do. Look back at verse 5. He says, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. The word mortify means to kill, to crucify, to deaden, or remove. And the word members means your body parts. And so, basically, what Paul is telling us to do is to mortify the parts of your body or the parts of your life that are attached to the things of this world. Or, to put it another way, mortify the internal desires that attach themselves to earthly affections. Mortify the internal desires that attach themselves to earthly affections. Now, an action which is what paul basically gives a list of doesn't he there when he begins with fornication and moves all the way down to lying there at the end of verse nine he gives us a list of actions and an action is nothing more listen carefully than a desire that comes in contact with an opportunity when desire comes in contact with opportunity most times an action is what takes place Now, if I have a desire for a double Dutch chocolate fudge cookie and I walk into the solid ground after a service and Bill is there and he says, hey, Nick, I got something for you. And he shoves across the counter a double Dutch chocolate fudge cookie and I have a desire for one of those. Well, desire has just been met with opportunity and now there's going to be an action. Because I'm going to take that cookie, capitalize on this opportunity, and I'm going to satiate or satisfy my desire through the action of indulgence. And what Paul is urging us to do, that we not be swept away in the affections of this world, is that we mortify the desires that will be capitalized upon by opportunities that present themselves constantly this world is not short for opportunities is it there are opportunities to turn away from the lord to do things that are going to destroy ourselves spiritually morally practically our family there are opportunities that we have to corrupt the power of christ in us constantly and paul is saying that the Believers' defense against it is to mortify the desires that attach themselves to these affections and would cause us to go down those roads. And then he gives us a list of the actions that typically take place when those desires are for carnal or sinful things. He says fornication. Fornication is sex or sexual contact outside of the boundaries of covenantal marriage. We talk to some people that say well we don't do that but we do everything else that's fornication it's sexual contact outside of the covenant of marriage and the bible defines that as wrong it's to be done under the covering of the covenant that you make before god and family and friend witnesses god invented sex he knows how it works He knows that it's pleasant. He made it. He made everything about it. Sometimes you say that word in church and people are almost like, oh, would you separate the two things, please? They don't. No, no, no. God made it. And he knows how it works. And he says, you put the fire in the fireplace, not on the kitchen counter. In the fireplace, in its proper place, it's it's good. But if you build a fire in the kitchen, you're going to have a disaster on your hands. Put it in the right place. Marriage is the place. Do you understand? He moves on. Fornication, he then says uncleanness. Now, uncleanness is also sexual in context. And it speaks of anything that you might justify that doesn't come under the heading or the topic of fornication. Uncleanness, that which defiles or makes unclean. It speaks of the realm of fantasy. That which you could say, well, we didn't actually even touch each other, you know. But it's covered that's what he's saying Then he says inordinate affection inordinate means not ordained the word you see the word ordinate there It means ordained and inordinate affection So that means any affection or an affection for anything that is not ordained of god and then he says Evil concupiscence now, you know what that means. So we'll just move right on. No, no, no Evil concupiscence is just King James lingo that means a desire for that which is forbidden. To desire anything that is forbidden is evil concupiscence. And then uh, he, he lists there also um, covetousness, he says, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, covetousness is a completely different arena. You know, there's some people that they have absolutely no struggle or relatively very little struggle in the arena of sexual or passionate type of of sins. But yet, when when it comes to greed, and it comes to the accumulation of things, and it comes to wanting more and never being satisfied with what they have, to them, they're in an area where, where they have allowed earthly affections to match the desires that are in their old nature, and it brings forth Bad fruit and it corrupts the relationship that God wants to have and the fruit that He wants to bring forth in their life. Now, Paul qualifies in verse 6 all of these things as outside the boundaries of salvation. Notice in verse 6, he says, For which things' sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. So, just in case you were wondering how God feels about any of the above actions. He tells us there in verse 6 that these things are the producing of God's wrath. But then he says, but this isn't you guys. I'm not talking to you in verse 7. He says, in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. You ever hear a preacher do that? He'll be talking to a congregation about something and then he'll say, not you guys. Not you guys. I'm talking to the second service people, you know, or this is the, you know, this is other Christians, but not you guys, you know, and and Paul's kind of doing that here. He lists these things, and, and if he didn't have to list them, he wouldn't have, so he had to. There's a hint of sarcasm in his voice, but it's a warning, a real warning. And then he says, You walked in these things sometime when you lived in them, but then he says that you've also now Put off all these. The list goes on. And then he lists things that are a lot more simple, a lot more excusable, a lot more invisible or less noticeable, perhaps, by people in the church. He says anger. The word anger speaks of an anger that is deep and simmering, that's a part of your personality. It's a character trait, that you're an angry person. And there are some people that are angry. You know, it, it's almost a source of energy for them that they feed on anger. They they allow it to fester and they feed off of it. And it's a very powerful and a very dangerous thing. And Paul says, put it off, just like you would take off a, a ripped shirt or a tattered article of clothing. Get rid of it. And then he says, wrath. The wrath is that's the the you know the quick burst. You know what I'm talking about. In fact, you know just just the other night, you know. <laughs> we we my kids um they accumulate things i don't know where things come from i think things are in the closets reproducing and making new things because when you have kids just things you open a door and things just fall out and and there is probably about 50 drumsticks in my house nobody really plays the drums rocky's learning a little bit but there's 50 anyways long story short my mother passed on to us this sectional sofa. It's nothing fancy. It's just like, you know, it fits in our house, and it was free, so we have it. And if you know anything about sectional sofa, you know, the the seams in between the cushions go all the way down to the floor, right? They don't stop at the bottom of the cushion. Well, one of my kids, Rocky took some drumsticks and he put them in the you know the seat he, he, he had no ill intention it 's just this is the things kids do when they have to clean up or put things away. so he put some drumsticks in between the seat, pointing upward in between you know and Daddy was going to have a snack right after the kids went to bed maybe watch the final inning of the Yankee game, and so Daddy, tired from the day, puts his stuff on the table and plops down on the couch. Not sits, but just falls back into the seat, directly onto the drumsticks. That's what Paul is talking about when he says wrath. (laughs) Usually, when there's wrath, something gets broken, right? (laughs) And 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 it was good. God gave me victory because I grabbed the drumsticks and Georgia heard me from wherever she was and ah, you know, and and I grabbed the drumsticks and and you know you just get this burst of adrenaline. I took the drumsticks and I put them in my knee and I could have I could have broke them six times, you know, but I didn't. I just I stopped probably because my wife was looking at me like, what's he gonna do, you know? What's gonna happen now, you know? And I just, and I, you know, and, and, and it went away. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says wrath, you know, that burst of, and you know what it's like when someone cuts you off in traffic or, you know, when, when someone does something intentionally to like get under your skin and you just feel that instant anger just want to come out of you, you know, Paul says, don't give yourself to wrath, you know, and then he goes on there and he says also malice malice is ill intention it's the opposite the exact opposite of kindness it's to have ill desires towards someone or to produce an ill outcome for someone it's malice it's bad it can happen in the mind you know you ever have you ever done this i i i'm probably the only one here that's ever done this but have you ever had an argument with someone when they're not even there you know, and you say what you want to say, and then you know you come up with a rebuttal for them, and then you trump that, and you you know, and you just put someone in their place in your mind. They're not even there, in their, you don't know what I'm talking about. All right, well, that, it's that kind of thing. It's just malice, you know, ill intention, or or ill will towards someone. He says, put it off. Then he says blasphemy, and that's to use the Lord's name lightly in this context. You know, to use the Lord's name and, and attach it to a curse word or something. And then uh, he he builds on that with filthy communication out of your mouth. And that would be anything that you can imagine that would not come out of the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. It's filthy communication out of your mouth. And then he finishes the list in verse 9 by saying, And lie not one to another. Be people that tell the truth. I can tell you this is such a purifying thing. That if if you just make this a part of your life, that you're always going to tell the truth, it changes so many other areas of your life. It changes your behavior because you know that that you might have to answer for something that you're you're doing and that if you always answer honestly, you're going to have to tell the truth and that will help you make the right decision when you're about to do something. There's so many things that just telling the truth brings as far as peace is concerned in the life of a person. Just tell the truth. He says, and lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. You say, how do you put off desires that are embedded in my very nature, in my DNA? How do I put off affections for earthly things, the kind of things that Paul is talking about here in this list? Paul gives us the answer and it's incredibly simple and very profound you know how you do it you choose to the child of God is different than any other person in the whole world because the child of God has a choice whether or not they're going to live a particular way or do a particular thing or not we have a choice The Bible says that we are no longer servants to sin. Romans chapter 6, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. We are not slaves to any part of our personality or our nature or our vices or our past. We're not slaves to any of it. And Paul says, for you and for me that have Christ living inside of us, it's as simple as deciding to change our shirt. I'm not going to wear this shirt any longer. I'm going to put on this shirt instead. And it's just a simple choice that we have. If you got sprayed by a skunk, and you just kept on wearing that shirt that was filled with skunk odor because it was a part of you, I love this shirt. I've had this shirt for so many years, I just, I can't part with it. And no matter how many times you wash it, you've bleached it, you've even poured gasoline on it. Just anything to try to get that smell off and nothing works, but you're just going to continue to wear it. And then someone says to you, hey, why are you still wearing that shirt? I can't. I can't take it off. No, 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 you, you can take it off. You don't want to take it off. And that's the context in which Paul is saying that these things in the life of a believer are, is that you cannot make the excuse that you can't. Well, I just can't stop fornicating. I just can't stop with uncleanness. I just can't stop lying. Yes, you can if you have Jesus Christ living in you, because the Bible says that he gives you power over those things. That's what Paul says there in verse 9. He says, or verse 10. He says, You have put on the new man, listen, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The new man, or this new clothing that you're putting on, is more powerful than the old nature because it's created in the renewed image of God that made it. And so, therefore, this new man is more powerful than the old man. And in verse 11, he removes any other excuse that you might have. Because notice what he says in verse 11. He says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, or free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, you can no longer say, well, I'm like this because I'm Irish. And you know about the Irish temper. You know, we just, it's just something that's in. No, 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 you can't say it. There is no longer an Irishman. Well, I'm legalistic in nature because I was brought up as a Jew or I was brought up as a Catholic. And so I just have a very legalistic tendency. No, 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 no. Remember, he rebuked legalism back in chapter 2. You can't make that excuse that this is just a part of who you are. Because the new man that's inside of you is stronger than the old man, which is corrupt according to its deeds. You don't have that excuse. Put on the new. It's more powerful. There's no reason why you can't do it. And listen, Paul did not feel as though he was being insensitive by saying it's as simple as changing your clothes. Change your attire. Put off the old. Put on the new. Well, then what? I've taken off the old, so what do I put on? He tells us in verse 12. Our new clothing, church clothes, if you would, your Sunday best. This is what you're to wear. He says, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Bowels. Now, that word bowels carries a different meaning in the king's English than it does in modern society. The word bowels there in the Greek language means inward affections now you've heard that word affections a few times in this bible study already right there's a new set of affections that we're to have a new set of clothing he says put on new affections inward affections he says bowels of mercies mercy is just pity and compassion be compassionate towards people See beyond the surface and understand what's really, where it's coming from, why they are the way they are, and have some pity. Put on mercies. Then, kindness. Kindness is just practical benevolence. Just be nice to people. Be kind. It's the opposite of malice, which is ill intentions and always thinking evil of people. Instead, think the best. Be kind. Then he says, and I love this one, but it tortures me, humbleness of mind. Now, if he had said humbleness, that would be okay. We know what humbleness is. Humbleness is lowliness. It's considering others to be better than ourselves. It's it's, it's having a lowly estimation of self. That's humility. But then he has to add on the second part. He says humility of mind. That means not just the way that you act towards people, but the way that you think. That means that the way that we think is that we're to consider and think of ourselves as lowly and think of others as better or greater or more mature or having better intentions than perhaps it appears. See, many of us, we know how to act humble. I think we live in the United States of humble America, where everybody knows how to act humble. Where we, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, we act very humble, but then we close the car door and we go, you know. If only they really knew what was going on, like I did, like we did, you know. Humility of mind means that it's a way you think. That you're to think of other people as better than yourself. And then he says meekness. Now meekness is, listen, meekness is strength under control. That's what meekness is. It's strength under control. Horses are the illustration of meekness. A horse could easily kill a man. And sometimes it happens. But horses are typically very meek creatures. They have the strength to do us in, but yet they don't. And that's what meekness speaks of. It's having strength, but it's having strength under control. The Bible talks a lot about strength, that he renews our strength. Your your youth and your strength will be renewed like the eagles. He's the God of all strength. He provides strength. He quickens or gives strength to his people. Over and over again, the Bible talks about strength. And yet many of us, We walk around in a lot of weakness oftentimes. We feel tired. We feel fatigued. We feel, you know, why do I feel this way? I believe oftentimes it's because of what we would do with the strength if we had it. What we would do with the strength if we had it. And so God sometimes will wait. But he says we're to put on meekness, this power under control. Then he goes on and he says long-suffering could somebody shoot that thing thank you (laughs) long suffering someone's on the tape going what is what just happened uh, there's an alarm clock somewhere in the building you know but long suffering wait oh goodness maybe i should listen long (laughs) see what is long suffering (laughs) see see listen you're not the only one that god speaks to you know it's me too you know suffering long a long time being patient for a long time and then he says in verse 13 he says forbearing one another and forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any even as christ forgave you so also do ye. listen this world this life has to do with other people doesn't it and because there are other people in this world god knows that we are going to need forbearance Forbearance means that you bear with people ahead of time. If you forbear, it means that you're choosing to bear with someone's attitude or someone's quirks or problems or you know whatever the thing might be that annoys you about a person, but you're choosing ahead of time that you're going to bear with it. You're forbearing. And then he says forgiving. Forgiving means that you're not going to keep a record of wrong. Forgiveness means that you're letting go of the debt. It's something that we're going to need to do as Christians because we're living on this planet with other fallen people. Forgiveness is necessary. It's something that we need to put on. If any man has a quarrel against any, how are we to forgive? As Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now listen, this is profound. How did Christ forgive you? Were you right? there was a breach right in the relationship you were alienated separated from god you were not on his friend list if you would there was a breach in the relationship and it says that christ forgave you now if there was a breach it means that somebody had made an offense somebody had done something wrong now let me ask you was it jesus no it was us we sinned we all like sheep have gone astray the bible says But here's what Jesus did, and this is how Jesus forgave us. Jesus said, you know what? I'm wrong. That's what the cross was. It was God coming to earth and saying, you know what? I'm wrong. I'll bear the fault. I'll bear the brunt of this one, but let's restore the relationship. It's not worth eternal separation over your sin. And so I will make the declaration that I am wrong, and I will reach out to you. And he says that that's the way that we're supposed to forgive others, the way Christ forgave us. That means, listen, you might be right. You might have a point. You might be the righteous party or the offended party or the victim. But he's saying, forgive, put on forgiveness as Christ forgave you. Bear it. Be the bigger person for the sake of saving the relationship and perhaps even maybe saving the soul. witness of christ and that it brings as you just forgive and then he says in verse 14 and above all these things so now after you've put on your shirt and your sweatpants and you know your scarf and your hat and all the rest now the diamond necklace or the diamond ring that caps it all he says above all these things verse 14 put on charity the word charity is love or agape he says, which is the bond of perfectness. It's the thing that holds all the rest together. It's agape love. Do you know what agape love is? It's unconditional love. That's the difference between agape love and any other definition of love that the world can throw at you, is that it's a love that is unconditional. And he says, these are the things that we are to put on. This is what Uh, you know this clothing is all about and so the attire that paul tells us that we're to choose to wear is that we're to put off the things that will bring us into bondage to the affections of this world and we're to put on the things that are the values of that which is to come we're to be ornamented with the character and the nature of christ and that we do that by choice And the result will be that we'll begin to live above the things of this world. Well, he goes on, and he talks to us now about our direction. The choice that we make, the direction that we take in this life, where our choice has consequences, is in our direction. A lifetime is a long time, isn't it, to not get sideswiped by the world. I mean, if you think about it, our 70 or 80 years that we're going to spend on this planet, it's going to go by in a flash, It'll be over in a breeze. But while we're here, it's a whole lot of time to not be distracted and taken off course. So how does a Christian navigate through the decision-making process and through the circumstances that life throws at us so that we don't end up sidetracked and sideswiped by the world? What Paul gives us here in verses 15, 16, and 17 are three navigational instruments to help us discern the will of God for our lives. Three things that we can put in our bag of tools that will help us to discern what is God's best for us at any given moment. The first there in verse 15, he says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you are called in one body and be ye thankful. The first article or the first tool of piece of navigation equipment is the peace of God. The word rule there, it's the word referee. You understand the concept of a referee, right? Someone who calls the play. You're either safe or you're out. Or the ball was fair or the ball was foul. And he says that the peace of God in the life of a child of God is a great instrument for discerning the will of God. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27, He said, Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. There is a peace that comes from God. And what Paul is telling us is that that peace, part of what it does is that it provides for us a sense of navigation. It becomes for us a referee. Well, how does that work? Here's how it works. Is that God will sometimes take that peace that he's put inside of our hearts. And in the middle of a circumstance where we really can't decide what to do and we really feel like we're making a bad decision, He'll give us a perfect peace. You know, this seems like I'm making the wrong move. I'm making a real bad decision here, but I I just have this peace in my heart. There's there's just something supernatural about it. As I'm not anxious about it, taking this job or buying that house or whatever the decision might be, I just have this incredible peace. Or sometimes we might be faced with a decision that's a no-brainer. This is so obvious. I mean, look at the price. How could we pass up this deal? It's a no-brainer. But yet, for some reason, God will remove his peace. And and, though it seems like it's a good decision, everything lines up in an earthly sense, yet internally there's something about it that's just not sitting right. Paul's saying, learn how to use the peace of God to, 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 to adjust and make your decisions. Now, that's a good instrument, but it's not enough by itself. Because sometimes I'll talk to people that say, you know, I have a real peace about this divorce that I'm about to go through, or I have a real peace about moving in with her or moving in with him. I just have this peace. I think it's of the Lord. No, 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 no. The peace of God is not enough. You also need the second instrument that Paul tells us of there. He says in the next verse, verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The second tool or instrument that he gives to us is the word of Christ properly interpreted and applied. The word of Christ in all wisdom. Meaning, what does God's word say? Now, the word gets in three different ways. First of all, what we're doing right now. Reading the word of God. That's how we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Second of all, he says teaching and admonishing one another so talking about the word with people gets the word going in your mind then he says also in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the lord so any way basically that you can get the word into your life Get the word into your life, whether it's through reading, whether it's through teaching, whether it's through speaking it yourself, whether it's through singing the lyrics of the Bible or songs of the Lord, the spiritual songs, immerse yourself in the word of God. Why? Because it's going to be for you a compass. It's going to provide for you direction and insight into what the will of God is for your life. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word illuminates the path. It shows us what's the right way to go. And listen carefully. The peace of God will never lead you to a place where the word of God forbids you to be. The peace of God will never lead you to a place where the word of God forbids you to be. I love that scene in the pilgrim's progress part two where the interpreter who is the holy spirit is speaking to christiana who is the wife of christian in part the first you know of the pilgrim's progress and i love what he says to her there he gives her the bible and he says take this book it's an allegory great story he hands it to her and he says take this book and meditate in it read it and absorb it take it in every way that you can until you have it by root of heart I love those words. Until you have it by root of heart. And that's what Paul is saying when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly until you've got it by root of heart. And then it will be for you a lamp to your feet, a light to your path. So you have the peace of God, you have the word of God. And then in verse 17, you have part three. He says, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the father by him. The third instrument and this navigation set that god gives to us is what you do do it in the name of jesus can you do that thing you're praying about or go down that road or embark on that you know uh, venture in the name of jesus well i'm trying to get this job and i got a job offer as a bartender can you pour drinks in jesus name i'm just asking you you know well, I, I want to, you know, and whatever, whatever the case might be, can you do it in Jesus' name? If you can do it in Jesus' name, well, then you've got that one down. But if you can't, then you might want to ask yourself if this is the will of God for your life. And so he talks to us about the direction of our lives and the choices that we make. And then he moves on to the fourth area of our life that makes a difference in our fruitfulness, in our relationship with the Lord, and that is in our relationships with other people. Now, there is an inescapable, unavoidable aspect of this life, and that is people. That we're going to have to deal with people. And therefore, the way that we function in relationships with people is a real key to our spiritual health. And what Paul does in these verses is that he gives us real quick instruction as to how to do that. He begins in verse 18 with wives. He says, wives... Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Wives, their role, the place where they will thrive and be blessed in the Lord and be happy in their heart is to be in a place of submission to their husbands. Now, most women, and I'm not against women, it's just the way women are wired, is that when they hear the word submit, the hair on the back of their neck stands up. They hear that word, and it just and then once you put that word in the same sentence with husbands, then something else happens. You know, you start to get that wrath feeling. You know, like submit to my husband. You know, oh Lord, what's going on? What? But but, but you know, here's the thing: although oftentimes it is difficult for a woman to submit or to be in, an, uh, in a in a place of submission to her husband, yet it is often more. Common for a woman to be in submission to Christ than it is for a man If you tell a woman to submit to her husband But if you say be in submission to Christ she says oh Jesus you know more often than not and so listen to the appeal that Paul makes for submission to husbands He says wives submit to your husbands as it is fit in the Lord In other words, it's as though Jesus is saying to you listen Do this in my name in obedience and reverence for me, be in submission to your husband. And a woman is likely to take that and say, "Lord, for your sake, I will do it." But why, Lord? Why? Why do I have to submit to him? He's an idiot, you know. I, I don't. And, and here's what Jesus would say: Because for you to be in an attitude of submission means that you are going to have to seek me for help and strength. And there you will find the help and strength you are seeking. And therefore, you will be prospered in your spiritual health. Then he says, husbands, verse 19, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Husbands, you are to love your wives. The love there is the word agape. And again, it's unconditional love. And then he says, and do not be bitter against them. Now, the recourse that most men have to wives that are annoying to them is that they become bitter. That's what happens to men when they're they're on the outs with their wives. They become bitter towards their wives. And he's saying, no, 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 don't be bitter towards them, but love them unconditionally. And the man would say, Lord, why? And he would say, because you're going to have to seek me for strength. You're going to have to seek me for the power to do this, to love your wife with unconditional love because you don't have it. Oh, and that's going to cause strength in the husband, in his love towards the wife. And an amazing thing happens when a husband loves his wife. Do you know what it is? She submits. It's an incredible thing that happens. A relationship works so well. Then verse 20, children. He says, children, obey your parents in all things for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. That The word children is the word technon, and it means those that are living at home, under the care of their parents. Those that are there, and he says that they are to obey. Now, a child hearing this, most likely is sitting in the pew next to their parents, and they hear my voice, or they read Paul's words, and they look over and they say, Are you serious? They're so archaic. They're so out of touch. I'm supposed to obey them in all things? I can't can't even do that. How am I to do that? And the Lord would say, listen, you're going to need to seek me. Because I'm the one that will give you the power and the ability to do it. And therefore, because you're close to me, because you're drawing from me, you're going to be spiritually healthy. Fathers, he says, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Now, the word anger is in italics, which means it's not there in the original language. It was added by the translators under assumption. But this more accurately reads, fathers, do not provoke your children unto discouragement. In other words, what he's saying is, do not be the cause of discouragement in your children's lives, father. There are two major errors that fathers make, the two biggies. Number one is that they measure their children according to the wisdom that they have through age. They expect their kids to see the world through their eyes the way they do. And it doesn't work like that. When a child sees a helium balloon, it's like seeing gold. It's the most beautiful, majestic thing they've ever seen, the way it just soars in the breeze and has that ribbon, you know, A grown man sees cheap rubber filled with hot air and a waste of space. And so when a child loses that balloon, the response often of the adult is, ah, it's just a piece of garbage. And it's discouraging to the child because they're not seeing the world that way. Listen, God watches men, his kids, right? And what do we do? We go, gold silver, diamonds, you know, yes, wealth, treasure, you know, and we're like, yeah. God looks at it. What does he see? Asphalt, rocks, dirt, refuse. But he doesn't say, what's wrong with you? What's the matter with you that you're looking at? That's just waste. It's garbage. It's asphalt. Get your mind on something that's right. No, no, he's patient with us. He loves us. He's careful with us. The second error that fathers make with their children is that they seek to mold them into something that God didn't intend them to be. Whether they want their children to succeed where they failed or, you know, whatever else it might be that they're trying to produce in their lives, make them something that they're not. Listen, dads, our job with our kids is not to mold them, but to unfold them. To help them discover what it is that God has put in them and wired them for and made them to be, and then to encourage that and invest in that and cultivate that. And the result of that is that children won't be discouraged. You say, oh, it's so hard for me to relate to my child. God says, you're going to have to seek me. I'll give you the ability to love them with my love and to give to them the things that they need. Verse 22, servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. If you're under the yoke, if you have an employer, then your role in the relationship is to serve them as though you're serving Christ. You say, well, how do I do that? Because my boss is such a tyrant. Here's how you do it. The answer is in verse 24. He says, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. In other words, here's your perspective, employee. You're not doing it for an earthly paycheck you're doing it for an eternal reward and in that you will find the ability to obey in all things and to serve heartily as unto the lord when your perspective is upward but listen you're going to have to seek him draw strength from him let him fill you and empower you to live this kind of life and then he says but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done and there is no respect of persons. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master which is in heaven. And so Paul sums up these four areas of our life where we can either cultivate or corrupt the work that God desires to produce and bring forth within our lives our affections, our attire, our direction and the relationships that we have with one another. As we close, just a final thought, and the musicians can come. Sometimes, and I appreciate your patience. You know I'm going to beat myself up for six days and try to avoid Bobby tomorrow. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. They're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. And usually they're being critical. It's a critical tone. What Paul is saying to us in these verses, in this text, is that until you are heavenly-minded, you are no earthly good. We read of the man Abraham. He was a man who lived for heaven. Every time you read about Abraham, there was two things, a tent and an altar. The tent spoke of his relationship with this world, temporary just passing through the altar spoke of his relationship with the next world devoted completely and thoroughly to the lord he was a man who lived for heaven and here's the secret he lived for heaven and he got earth thrown in too there's many people that live for earth and they never really attain the thing that they're seeking to find and acquire they never quite make it and oftentimes they miss heaven in the process The question that the Lord would ask you tonight, what are you living for? What is the direction and the aim of your life? Where are your affections set? If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Amen? Let's stand. Mm-hmm. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We ask that you would sink this seed deep within us. Not a to-do list, but a to-done. List. And that you would help us as we seek to govern and make choices that will bring us into the fullness of your plan for our lives. And so we commit ourselves to you afresh. And we pray your will be done each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.